Welcome to Episode 11 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and President-elect of AAEM, speaks with Dr. Todd Schlesinger of Aventura Hospital in Florida about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Good morning from sunny Florida. I'm Dr. Farsi, the host of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Critical Care Podcast. And today it is my pleasure to introduce my friend, a colleague, Dr. Todd Schlesinger. Dr. Todd Schlesinger is the founding program director of Aventura Hospital Medical Center in Aventura, Florida. He's a distinguished speaker, distinguished author, and involved in nationally in education and quality measures. Todd, before I say hello, I'd like to wish you a happy birthday and thank you very much for taking the time today after your birthday. I'll spare our listener my singing, but happy birthday. Thank you, Todd. Dave, thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here and to join you on this podcast. So today, for our listener, we're going to talk about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Today's podcast is really based on two expert opinion and mainly Dr. Schlesinger's expert opinion. And I felt this was important for our residents, community doctors, and physicians all over the world that use non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, as there is significant misunderstanding of the therapy. So, Todd, do you want to give us a little history, background, or do you want to start leading the conversation off? Sure. Um, so- we're more used to it and applying it with ventilators on endotracheally intubated patients, but the use of non-invasive ventilation, um, you know, which we commonly talk about as either BiPAP or CPAP, is a modality that we have at our fingertips, especially in the emergency department, that really shows a lot of different benefits um, for our patients. The catch is knowing towards other, to prevent um, endotracheal intubation, but um, also it's a therapy in its own right um, for different types of diseases. And I think it'll be great. We'll talk about, I think, a couple different cases and different times when you would use it or would not use it. Great. And so as we're getting into it, I'd like to start with the basic understanding of non-invasive Non-invasive is not a curative therapy, but mainly a bridge until the given therapy applied to a certain disease will work. So can you give us, I think I'll start backward. We'll start with the, is there any contraindication to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? I think the contraindications really are if you know you have to intubate someone immediately. Um, delaying it for BiPAP, and a lot of times just, you know, your own expertise deciding it can be um, a mistake. Definitely in cases of facial trauma, 
Um, we don't want to use it um, when someone's vomiting or can't uh, um, maintain their airway for other reasons because it's not a definitive airway. You know, it's truly just a device that creates positive pressure. We use all these fancy terms like IPAP and EPAP and different numbers, which can sound confusing, but really it's just a device that's creating pressure, pushing it through the mouth. So the face mask has to fit. You can't have sometimes like a large beard that gets in the way. It's got to be airtight. Um, you don't want the person aspirating. So, you know, some people would say if you had recent um, upper... Um, digestive tract surgery, you know, are you putting a lot of pressure against suture lines? Um, there are a lot of times when you definitely don't want to use it, you know, and it's important to understand that beforehand, you know, with any procedure we do, the contraindications are important to know beforehand. Right. So to summarize, it, depicting the patient is really very important for the success of this AKA bridge therapy. So you know, the clinical course of the patient is not expected to be reversible a short period of time, maybe not the best therapy. Um, as Dr. Schlesinger mentioned, facial trauma, oral secretion, beard, where the mask doesn't have a good fit. And again, we also want to use it, as you were saying, for shorter periods of time. The patient has to be closely monitored, someone has to be able to be there by the bedside, right? You're not going to put someone on BiPAP and transfer them to another hospital or put them on an ambulance or put them on an airplane even necessarily. So historically, not that I've been doing this for many years, but a few years now, and during my residency, we had a lot of discussion on non-invasive ventilation. And mainly, most of the data at that time stated that there was no mortality or decreased need of intubation with the use of non-invasive pressure ventilation. Could you comment a little bit about the, you know, we're talking about 15 years ago. Can you comment about the data back then and a slow progression to where we are today? Sure. I think back then people weren't using it initially in their care. I think, and we've talked about this many times in all kinds of different topics, right? But if you're treating stroke, what do you have to do? You treat it early if you're going to do anything. A heart attack, obviously, early. Trauma, you don't let people bleed, right? You stop the bleeding early. So someone presents in respiratory distress or an intervention like um, BiPAP or non-invasive ventilation may work, obviously it's going to be the early intervention that's going to help someone turn around and not progress to true respiratory compromise and failure. As we know... I think in the old days, people were struggling, patients were struggling. It was probably already too late. They fell off their cliff. They were too far gone. And then someone was like, oh, maybe I can avoid you know, putting an endotracheal tube in them. And what happened was it was too late already, and they failed. And that's why I think in certain studies you saw more heart problems, heart attacks. It's just because the patients were left struggling for so long. By the time the BiPAP was applied it didn't really help you out. It'd be like in a trauma, so you bleed out, and then you're given the blood transfusion when they're about to code. It's not going to help them get better. It's the early application of these things, just like, as we said, even in sepsis, right? We know this. Early applications, especially in an emergency department setting, are going to maybe help that patient turn around and then prevent the possible need for endotracheal intubation. I cannot agree more. Just to 
we're not going to discuss any specific study. Um, and I tell my residents every day, when you listen to a podcast, you have to be very careful to how the data you're using from the podcast is applied. Uh, what Dr. Schlesinger was referring to is most of the studies pre-2000 was really studies in the ICU setting, not in emergency department settings. And the average time of initiation of BiPAP or non-invasive ventilation was six hours. And again, you know, we know now through acute coronary syndrome, stroke, trauma, sepsis, that disease are time sensitive. And the earlier we initiate the therapy, the better results we have. Uh, so one of the recommendation for your physician out there is look at your department, look at your emergency department and see what's the average time once you order BiPAP that your respiratory therapist is applying BiPAP. If it's more than 20 to 30 minutes, you definitely need to address and maybe learn and create a protocol that you should apply it yourself until th respiratory therapy arrive at the bedside. Would you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. And I'd say even for the residents out there, you should be there when the respiratory therapist applies it. You should know how to turn the machine on, how to fit a mask, how to get the little Velcro straps on tight, how to check for a leak. Because you know what? Maybe you're going to see a patient and the respiratory therapist is doing something else. And if you apply non-invasive ventilation early, but there's no one else to help you, you could help them. So if you know how to do it yourself, I mean, there's so many times I've grabbed the machine myself, plugged it in, connected it to the main oxygen, put the mask on the patient, um, and had it set up. And by the time the respiratory therapist got there, they were like, what am I supposed to do? And then you're like, check that I did it right. But um, that's the important thing. You can't always wait for someone else to do the job you need to do to save your patient's life. Correct. And I think that's something we talk about repetitively through the podcast, um, the previous podcast. The key factor that Dr. Schlesinger just said is, you know, evaluating the patient and starting the patient early. Um, and you should develop a mutual conversation between both department, your respiratory department and yourself, and to know that we're all going to work as a team. And if you're starting, it's not a territorial debate or territorial fight, but it's really trying to give the best care to the patient. So Dr. Schlesinger mentioned about the mask. There is three types of delivery system, and we're not going to talk too much about it. There's the full face mask, there's the nasal BiPAP, and the face mask. My personal two cents, again, this is my personal two cents, I think that in the emergency setting, the face mask is probably the best system uh, and the most available one uh, in most emergency departments across the country. Um, so we're going to focus mainly our podcast just based on the face mask. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree with that. The full over-the-face mask no one really has isn't terribly disposable. Nasal is typically used just in CPAP for those with sleep apnea. Um, but in the emergency setting, the regular face mask that goes around the nose and mouth is the appropriate one to use. So now we're going to go into the bread and butter, or what I call, of non-invasive positive ventilation, specifically in regard to BiPAP. 
So Todd, could you try to explain it to us like I'm a six-year-old, um, that I'm not a critical care doctor or I'm not an attending, but like a six-year-old. What is BiPAP? What is IPAP? And what is EPAP? The, the way I like to think of it is this. It's just a machine that's blowing air at you, right? You can choose the mixture of how much oxygen and how much air it is, but that's a separate setting. But ultimately, the, the device is just pushing air at a setting that you set. And we choose pressures as our setting, even though it's really creating a flow that gets to that pressure. Um, you know, we're not going to go through all the laws of physics, but it all goes together. Flow, volume, pressure all go together. Pressure is the easier thing to measure, and that's typically the setting that we use. But it shouldn't be thought of in that complicated way. You know, it's like if you're driving in a car and you stick your face out the window and the air is blowing in, that's CPAP right there. Um, that's air just blowing at you, creates a pressure. And I just want to interject for our residents out there, CPAP in BiPAP setting is equivalent to the expiratory positive airway pressure, the AKA EPAP. Sorry. Yeah, that's exactly true. So CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, um, when you're talking about BiPAP, which has two settings, there's the inspiratory or IPAP and the exhalatory or EPAP. Um, CPAP's continuous. It's the same thing when you're using ventilators as PEEP. Um, there are definitely some slight theory differences there because CPAP's always applied by a machine blowing air at you. Ventilators are sometimes different because they can create PEEP by restricting air coming out of you. But that's not really for us to talk about today. It's really indistinguishable. The CPAP PEEP, or if we're using BiPAP, the EPAP, that's the constant pressure. That's the lowest pressure being applied. And the way I like to think of it is that's the thing you're using to get oxygenation, right? I always think there's basically two problems when you're having uh, breathing and ventilatory issues, right? One is oxygenation issues, and the other is ventilation issues. Um, for oxygenation, that's why you know, if you're on a regular ventilator, right, you increase the PEEP has been known to increase your PaO2, your oxygenation. So EPAP, or your baseline pressure, what that does is by increasing the pressures that are applied to the lung, it actually creates more lung space. It, cre it increases the volumes of the lung. It recruits alveoli that weren't there. It gives you a little more surface area. And by doing that, that's, that's the one thing that we do know with all the physics is that increasing your baseline pressure, and in this case we're talking about the EPAP, um, increases your oxygenation because it's proportional. Your PaO2 is proportional to your total lung volumes, which is proportional to the baseline pressure the patient's at. So when we're talking about oxygenation issues, um, and I will get into it later, but CHF would be a great example of a patient that typically has a, a low oxygen state, we're going to concentrate more on our baseline pressures. So I'm going to pause for a second. Just want to recap some of the very important key points you say. I'm going to restate it in, I think, a simpler word. And please stop me if I'm wrong. So I use, when I explain to my residents that are in a normal state, right now me sitting in a chair and talking, I have about two liters in my functional residual capacity. And when I 
exhale or inhale, I don't start from baseline, I don't start from zero. So the EPAP is what we're talking about, is the disease state, the functional residual capacity is gone. And the inspiration and expiration starts really from the earlier part of the curve, which increase work of breathing. And the best example I gave is the same when you're, when you're inflating a balloon, um, we've all inflated balloon for birthday parties. The first breath that we're giving is the most difficult breath to get in. Um, so the EPAP is really to prevent the alveoli from collapsing to zero. Same as the PEEP. So it doesn't decrease the alveoli and going to promote the term recruitment. Recruitment is a term that sometimes people confuse. Recruitment really means that all those alveoli that have been collapsed, those are lung units that do not perform in oxygenation, recruitment allows for them to reinflate and participate in the oxygenation and gas exchange, thus increasing the oxygenation. Is this a fair, simple explanation? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the point that you're saying that should be stressed is once that alveoli is opened up, like when you're blowing the balloon, once you get over that increase, that first resistance when you're blowing it up, it's there to prevent it from recollapsing. And that's what's really important. So you're not using your energy to open and close these alveoli. They're remaining open, you know, and using, you know, keeping your FRC or functional residual capacity high, it's exactly the same as what I was saying, because that's all proportional. That's your lung volumes. It's your number of alveoli. The more you have there... Um, you know, the more ability and the easier it is to oxygenate the patient. And that's regardless of what your FiO2 is. So, again, EPAP equal oxygenation. Just try to put it in that bracket. Now we're going to go into IPAP, the inspiratory positive airway pressure. Now, I equate this to ventilation. Can you expand on that? Yeah, IPAP... This is exactly what it says. You're applying, and this is always a higher number than EPAP, you're applying a higher pressure during inhalation or inspiration. And that pressure is really important. You know, this is exactly the same as using pressure control ventilation. I should say it's really like pressure support ventilation, but it's, it's a higher pressure. It's triggered, so as the patient inhales, something triggers the machine, that increased flow, and the machine starts pushing the flow and the pressure at a much higher level during the time you're inhaling. And that's really important because what you're doing is you're creating a pressure differential. So it's not just the higher pressures expanding the lungs more, but depending on the size of that IPAP, the more of a differential you have from inhalation, the IPAP, to the exhalation, the EPAP, that difference, that change in pressure, delta pressure, that's what defines the tidal volume. Um, and the tidal volume, depending on how fast you're breathing, defines the minute volume, and that defines your um, how much carbon dioxide you're exhaling um, to a certain extent. Obviously, the physiology is a little more complex, but if you're really going to simplify it, the bigger the difference between the IPAP and the EPAP, the bigger the breath, the bigger the tidal volume, the more carbon dioxide you'll actually be able to exhale for a given breath. And so that's when we're creating differences for different types of respiratory failure, that 
change, that difference from higher and lower pressures is what we're going to use to help manage hypercarbic respiratory failure or patients that have that their carbon dioxide is too high. So again, I'd like to clarify because I think those are very, very important point. So when we ventilate somebody, whether non-invasive or invasive, basically we're reaching for a minute ventilation, which is your respiratory rate times your tidal volume. So the way I think of IPAP, I think of IPAP as it's helping the person get a breath in by generating a pressure that will allow to reach a certain tidal volume. And by reaching a certain tidal volume, you decrease the work of breathing, thus increase the minute ventilation. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And again, I'd like to point out that the IPAP minus the EPAP gives you your pressure support. So if your IPAP is 10, your EPAP is five, you get a pressure support of five. And that is a key important point because too often I see residents making changes and they'll go from 10 and five and they'll say, well, we need to increase the EPAP to eight. And I say, no, that's the wrong move because you're decreasing your pressure support. Uh, we went from five to three, and that's going to be the wrong move. But we'll get more into those details yeah. later. But Dave, let me just stress that. That's really important. Um, a lot of people try to compare BiPAP to pressure support ventilation. And, but when you're talking about those numbers, although PEEP and EPAP are the same, pressure support is the pressure support above PEEP. Um, so it's a different number. So pressure support above PEEP is different than the IPAP, right? Correct. So we've talked about EPAP, IPAP, and pressure support. So as a final, just want to clarify one more point because I know one of my residents brought this up last week. Again, we said IPAP is your ventilatory support. So it's going to decrease your work of breathing by providing increased tidal volume and, de- and increasing humid ventilation. That's, that's the effect. You mentioned that EPAP is really to push the fluid out in the case of pulmonary edema. And I explained to him that's not really what it, it does. It's really recruitment of the alveoli that increase oxygenation. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's really what we're talking about. We're using more lung units. We're opening up the lung. You know, I guess it'd be rudimentary to sort of say it's pushing it out. You're not wringing the lungs out. You're just opening more lung units to use for gas exchange. Okay, so now I think I'd like to go ahead and discuss about certain specific disease process where non-invasive positive ventilation has shown to help and some of the disease process where the evidence is variable uh, before I start, again, non-invasive ventilation is not a curative therapy. It is more a bridge therapy. When initiated early, will give time to the therapeutic mortality to act on the condition, thus buying time for those medications to work. That's a key component. When you place patient on, on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, 
you have to be at the bedside. You cannot just put the patient, walk away, come back two hours later. You have to be at the bedside. Look at the worker breathing, O2 saturation, respiratory rate, titrated to the condition. So now that I say this, let's start with, I think, the number one disease with the most evidence for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which is really COPD. And for my residents out there, we're going to talk about specific disease. Don't jump to conclusion and hear COPD and apply it for every respiratory disorder that is not COPD. Know what you're dealing with and make sure you're, you're targeting that specific disease. It's hard in the podcast, you just listen to a sun point or bullet points and you want to apply it to everybody, you know, making that patient fit into the box and come to your early conclusion or premature conclusion. So COPD. Yeah, so exactly. So COPD tends to be more of a ventilation issue. I mean, these patients, they have less lung to work with. They're usually chronically hypoxic. And that's an important thing to know off the bat because their drive, a lot of their ventilatory drive, often depends upon the fact that their oxygenation level is a little low. Um, you know, most of us that don't have lung disease, we're more driven by carbon dioxide. But with CPDs, especially as they get chronic and worse, their baseline CO2 is going to get higher. And then when they exacerbate and they come in, there there's two things going on. A, um, their CO2 levels, their carbon dioxide is getting higher, and that can cause altered mental status. And they're also working a lot harder. They're breathing fast. And as we said, there's less for them to work with. Um, so it's harder, their work of breathing's hard, and they're getting this air hunger too. And I think that's why BiPAP works really well with them. But again, when we're doing BiPAP, we're, in this case, we're trying to just augment their work of breathing. So we're really going to be concentrating more on the IPAP component, right? If we make our EPAP really high and just try to deal with oxygenation, you may actually take away some of their hypoxic drive and that's not what we're doing we're trying to create a big delta big change in pressure between inspiration and expiration it'll give them flow that takes away some of the air hunger it'll give them more volume um, in terms of i shouldn't say more volume but it'll ease their work of breathing and trying to create bigger volumes um, because they've lost lung units they've lost elasticity so in COPD, we're trying to help with the work of breathing. And by doing that, it's almost like if you're lifting weights and you're spotting someone, right? You're having a hard time lifting that weight. For that patient, each breath is a struggle. Each breath is trying to push that really heavy weight up. And by creating the IPAP, the inspiratory pressure, you're, you're spotting them, you're giving them, you're taking that work away. And when it does it, it makes the breath more effective. It lets them actually slow down so they can have a longer breath because part of your minute volume isn't just the tidal volume, but it's how it's your tidal volume and the rate. Some folks, because they're breathing so fast, they're trapping more and they're not allowing themselves to get the bigger volumes that get to the alveoli and get the carbon dioxide out. And that's why this is really helpful in those cases. So when we're working on a COPD, obviously non-invasive is good. Um, it's definitely 
has a lot of advantages over endotracheal intubation because we all know with the frail COPD ears, you know, you can pop up leb. They're more prone to pneumothoraces. Um, you know, we're often giving them antibiotics because they're very prone to pneumonias. Um, so you can take away this work of breathing. And while you're giving them bronchodilators, some steroids, antibiotics, other things that will help the underlying process, and if you get the CO2 better and their mental status improves, they may turn around fairly quickly on you. And it's definitely been shown to help in these folks. The key is not to overdo it on the EPAP side because this tends not to be as much of an oxygenation issue. So in COPD, many, many trials, we're not talking about a specific trial, but many trials have shown decreased rate of intubation, decreased length of stay in the ICU. So again, early recognition, early intervention, but the key component is not just put the BiPAP and walk away, it's also get the steroids on board, the albuterol, atrovant, antibiotic plus or minus. That's what's going to reverse the process. Yeah, and let, let me make one more point on that. Because when you're dealing with issues with hypercarbic respiratory failure, you know, when patients have those high CO2s, their mental status can become, you know, it's altered, but they can actually even be combative. And when we were talking earlier about things like when you can't use BiPAP or when it may be contraindicated, you need a patient that can participate. You know, so sometimes when you're starting with a COPD or you need to be at the bedside, you need to put the mask on them, talk it through and give them some insurance because the CO2 doesn't go away that quickly and we want them to get better. But if they're struggling and twisting their head and fighting it, we're not going to be helping them. So it's, it's so key, we, you keep saying it, that we have to be at the bedside for this. Because once you get them comfortable, once they're on it, once it starts working, then you reap the benefits of it. And I'll give my personal personal experience, but a lot of those time with those patients, like Dr. Schlesinger said, their air hunger is causing them to be combative and fighting, and they don't want the mask, they feel hot, they don't, they don't want it. I put the mask without the bends, I applied the face mask with the patient and had the patient hold it to themselves and talk to the patient, take a nice deep breath, relax. Uh, and it's easy when we say relax to a patient, uh, mainly when we use that word relax, we're telling it to ourselves, not to the patient, just one of my pet peeves. Um, but applying to the patient, once the patient is able to tolerate the setting, then that's when I put the bend. If the patient is fighting you left and right, not tolerating the mask, that patient's going to not do well. And maybe you need to think of an alternative, and maybe the patient needs to be intubated. So I'd like to move to the next disease process, which I think has the most evidence, and it's pulmonary edema, um, CHF. Now, again, this is another pet peeve of mine for the residents. CHF is chronic heart failure. In the emergency department, CHF is patient may have chronic heart failure, but what we see is we see the acute failure or the acute pulmonary edema. Uh, so that's one of my pet peeves. We don't see an acute, uh, we, we see acute pulmonary edema. It's, it's not, I have a chf -er. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Because I think a lot of times when you're talking about CHF, people start talking about, diuresis right away. And I think we know the patients that present to the emergency department, especially that early morning one, um, it, it's not a fluid overload issue. It's, it's the heart's backed up. The heart's not pumping. 
right? And we know, not that this is a conversation about CHF totally, right? But we know that nitrates and, um, are better than diuretics, right? We know that augmenting preload is the treatment of choice in acute pulmonary edema um, in heart failure patients. And that's where BiPAP, to me, makes so much sense. You know, I know there's a lot of evidence on the COPD side. And again, because if we were talking about it earlier, if you go back in time, a lot of the studies on it were done then. And we've known it's worked for COPD for a while. With CHF, I think it was more so used late in those patients. But to me, this is the patient class that really... You, you can watch them turn around in a short period of time, right? CPD, that's a chronic thing. You never cure it. But CHF, you can take someone coming in in terrible pulmonary edema. Their x-ray looks horrible. Their JVD, you know, up to their ears. And then you put them on some BiPAP. You give a little bit of nitrates and boom. You know, a half hour later, they're smiling. You're able to wean them off. And it's important um, to know this and use it and trust in it as a methodology um, so just before I, I make the statement you said it increased the preload you decrease De- okay correct okay just oh, sorry. decrease the preload so I cannot agree more um, for doing this for now 15 years you know, back in residency when we saw pulmonary edema we pretty much intubated most of those patients and today I tell my residents that intubating a pulmonary edema is failure of aggressive care at the bedside. Um, And pretty much I think the data supports that today, that we're seeing less and less intubation in pulmonary edema patient if aggressive early care, non-invasive, nitrate, and if the patient is fluid overload, you know, plus or minus the the Lasix, but that's a different. I'm not going to enter the this topic because it could be a podcast by itself. No, absolutely, because you know you can get also into the nuances. We're talking about your bread and butter CHF now. You know the patient coming in with an acute MI that's a flash pulmonary edema that needs to maybe go up to the cath lab and they're hypotensive and they need a balloon pump. You know that's not going to be your BiPAP patient, right? This is the patient you know has some sort of cardiomyopathy. They're coming in, it's your classic pulmonary edema, they're hypoxic, they're breathing fast, SATS 85, as you said, big JVD rails going all the way up, and you apply, you know, BiPAP. And again, in this case, we're really concentrating on the oxygenation, we're going to concentrate on a higher EPAP, right, just like PEEP. Um, this is about oxygenation. We're trying to open the lung, to open up those um, alveoli. It's not as much, it, it definitely helps with work of breathing, but right now what we're doing is we're opening those alveoli up, we're allowing oxygen in, the heart's happier when there's oxygen, it's going to beat better, it's going to, and you know, then there's the separate effect of applying the pressure to the lungs decreases preload in its own way. Because even though this pressure is applied in the airways, that pressure is still in the chest, it's in the thorax, and that's going to have an effect and exert itself on the blood flow returning on the heart. I know you like to talk about venous return, Dave. Correct. I, so the two points that I want to emphasize, pulmonary edema, again, acute CHF, it's really about the EPAP pressure. The EPAP, the physiology of the EPAP is not just about increasing 
the alveoli, but we get a secondary effect like Dr. Schlesinger mentioned, the increase in trithoracic pressure, which is going to decrease your venous return to the right side of the heart, just dropping your preload. Um, and with your nitrate, you're decreasing your preload by increasing your venous dilation. But also, you have an afterload reduction. Uh, as the intrathoracic pressure increases, it decreases the left ventricular transmural pressure of the left ventricle, which will decrease and, and reduce your afterload. So it's not just a preload, but it's also an afterload re reducer. So the key component is using your EPAP. Um, and I know some of my residents are probably listening to this and saying, come on, cut down to the chase and give me the basic settings. Um, and in this case, this is not the nitro where I tell you start at 400 mics and titrate to low. In this case, it's actually the opposite. I'm gonna say start low and titrate up. What's your belief on that? I agree. I mean, I know that in this case, I, I just wanna make sure I think a lot of it depends on the severity, you know, the size of the patient, how much pressure I want to apply, how much I'm trying to offload, both, as you said, because um, you need some of that to transmit over to the blood vessels. I mean, I tend to start with, you know, an EPAP in the range of like five to eight, um, and then I can go up from there. I think you got to be a little careful if you start with really high numbers on the EPAP. A, it's not comfortable for the patient at first because they're not used to it. Um, and B, it, it's almost too quick of a change. You know, this didn't just happen that, like in 10 seconds that got them there. And you start them on something, you get them used to it, and then you can titrate up. I, I agree with you. And what about your IPAP? The IPAP, I just give them a little bit of pressure support. Again, it's not, you're doing that just on the work of breathing side. Um, so I'd just go four or five above where I'm at. So if I picked eight, I'd go 12 or 13. Um, if I'm at five, I'll use eight or 10. Um, again, it's not that big of a difference to me. You ju I just want to know that I'm getting that EPAP, that baseline pressure, because as we sort of said before, that's what's increasing your mean airway pressures. That's what's increasing your FRC. That's what's increasing your lung volume. That's what increases the oxygen, your PaO2. Right. Those are all related. Correct. And I, you're giving the support. And it's a very fine line when you're giving the support. You don't want to go over support where you take the full work of breathing. Um, thus, you know, at, at these settings of mechanical ventilation. Um, and that's some, some comes that people have a hard time. When we talk about CPAP or pressure support or EPAP, we're talking about a pressure support anywhere between 5 to 20. And over 20, for my personal self, I say that you're getting in the mechanical ventilation range that the, your, the patient is not doing any work of breathing. It's pure pressure support ventilation at this time. Yeah, and, and then you, you run into all the problems with that. With the very high pressures, you're going to have a bigger leak. If you have a bigger leak, you got to make the mask tighter. If the mask is tighter, you can get you know, skin necrosis on the bridge of the nose. So same thing, you have these higher pressures, the it can go down the esophagus, you can get more gastric distension. And probably of all the bad things that can happen on BiPAP is someone vomiting and aspirating. Because what happens is the, that esophagus can get be maintained open by that same pressure. If there's a lot of stomach contents, they go up, they hit that mask, and then you push it right back into the lungs. And And that's really probably your biggest fear in BiPAP, it's that you don't technically have a secured airway. 
And so going like with a huge number to start with, you're risking all that before you know. Because we talked about it. If you're doing this, you're at the bedside. You're with them. You're holding their hand. You're watching them get better. You're talking them through it. And then you can see, okay, they can handle an EPAP of 8. I'm almost there. It's not better. Let's edge it up a little bit. Let's bring it to 10. Let's see. And and especially in the CHF because you know they're going to get better. So you'll watch them get better and... Just as quick as you titrate it up, you're going to be titrating down a half hour, hour later. I cannot agree more. It's And also, I challenge all the residents, go into your pulmonary department or your respiratory department and ask to be put on a BiPAP machine. It is very, It can be very scary. It's loud, you get positive pressure in your face, and people can get scared. So starting very high you're more likely to create more anxiety and less patient compliance. So, you know, start low, you're at the bedside, you're able to titrate it, titrate, titrate. At the same time, we're giving the nitro aggressively, we're doing other things that's working. And like Dr. Schlesinger said, that patient is going to turn a curve and you're going to re-slide back down the the, uh, pressure curve and start oxygenating and ventilating and then you'll be able to start titrating the BiPAP almost too off. And some in my department, you know, three, four, five hours later, we wean BiPAP to nasal cannula, downgrade the patient from telemetry down to a step down. So I think we covered pretty much pulmonary edema. Um, the next disease that I want to cover, and I'll give like a small talk, is asthma, acute asthma exacerbation. Now, for residents, I know we want to make that patient fit in the box, but asthma... And COPD is two different disease process. Asthma, you know, they get the air in, but they can't get really the air out. And there's very controversial evidence about asthma. So could you expand on that? Yeah, I'd say, you know, we, we have good systemic reviews, good studies over tens and tens of years for COPD and CHF. Asthma is definitely different. Um, you know, that there are not nearly as many studies. The results definitely haven't been shown to be as good. And, and to me, it actually makes sense. Because when you think of it, asthma is a little bit more of a bronchoconstriction kind of thing. Um, you know, the treatment from asthma for asthma is bronchodilating, right? We give bronchodilators off the bat. We give steroids. We know that works. We give, if you want to get fancier, some magnesium. Again, why does magnesium work? It's a smooth muscle dilator for the airways. Um, you know, the pressure that a BiPAP machine gives you in that case doesn't cure any of that, right? It can take away maybe a little work of breathing. And I think that's why sometimes people try it, but it's different than you know, in a COPD, or you need those bronchodilators, the steroids, the other things to get down to the alveoli level, to work at the cellular level, to actually start um, helping the patient. You know, I think the data in children, especially small kids, is different, and I don't think that's necessarily the subject of this podcast, but, you know, there's definitely a little more evidence there. But in the adult, um, when you look at all the meta-analysis and things like that, people just say it's promising but there's definitely no mortality benefit i think sometimes in patients that ultimately i think they've shown that using it you may get a few more discharges um but it's not really that's not what's helping you out and i think of it this way too right who do you intubate in the air right we, we intubate 
you know, sometimes the really bad heart failure patient, sometimes the really bad CPD, but how often are you actually intubating the asthmatic, right? I, it, it's pretty rare, you know, and, and when you do, right, because you say you intubate them when, you know, they almost stop breathing when they're so hypercarbic, right? And another thing I think I forgot to mention earlier, probably the biggest contraindication to BiPAP would be apnea, Right, you have to participate, and again, the, the you didn't mention that you said the patient has to be cooperative. So yeah, they do have to be cooperative. So, like the asthmatic, I, I just don't. You know, it's like the asthmatic. What are you trying to do? Prevent intubation? We rarely do that, anyways. So you may have a little help with work of breathing, but really, you should be concentrating more on the things that we know well. You know, you want to get fancy, use things like Heliox as your delivery device, but. Um, I don't think I don't jump to BiPAP when I think asthma. Um, no, and I don't either jump to BiPAP. I think the evidence for me, for Dr. Farsi, is pretty clear that the only thing that's going to reverse the process is really your albuterol, plus or minus, you know, atrovan, if, um, and then getting a steroid on board earlier. Uh, that's really the point. Sometimes I see, again, it's one of those disease processes. The sooner you get the steroids, remember the steroids not going to work immediately. It's going to take a certain amount of time to it to work. On average, anywhere between three to six hours, just initial to work. Um, so you may buy with the BiPAP a little window um, and make the person a little bit less, um, decrease a little bit of work of breathing, but it's not the, the BiPAP that's going to make the change. And another example of how we tend to grab information and we try to fit it for every disease. You mentioned Eliox. Okay, Eliox, off the topic, but Eliox supposed mechanism is to decrease the laminar flow and increasing delivery of medication and increasing uh, decreasing the work of breathing. And I hear people talk to me about, you know, BiPAP is great for asthma because it decreased laminar flow. Now, let me be clear, there is no data, no study, nothing has ever shown that it actually decreased laminar flow or increased the delivery of the medication. This is what I refer to, you know, it's going to make us feel better, not the patient. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, sure, you can connect a nebulizer to a BiPAP circuit, just like you could do it on a ventilator circuit. I just don't think it's you're getting the efficiency. You're not getting the drug necessary down there. Um, you know, laminar flows more has to do with, I think, the viscosity of the gas that you're using and or the size of the particle. Um, you know, so there are these those fancy continuous nebulizers where you may have smaller droplets to get down. Sure, that could help. Um, Heliox works because it's a lower viscosity gas, but BiPAP is not necessarily... Um, the solution to either of those. Again, I think the advantage you get is we know it can help with your work of breathing. And so if you need a little bit of that to get someone over the hump, maybe, if especially if they're a good responder to bronchodilators, mag, um, the steroids, we know are going to take some time. But um, it's not something you'd expect, oh my God, I'm going to get this amazing result really quickly from in an asthmatic. Correct. Agreed. And another disease process, which I think also is pretty much the same, is the respiratory failure secondary to pneumonia. And we're seeing some little evidence of pro or con, but I think there is no evidence to support BiPAP. It might bridges again um, for the curative, which is the antibiotic, the correct antibiotic therapy 
in a timely delivered method. If we go to the sepsis guideline, you know, we want from the patient reach our department to the time of antibiotic delivery, we want it to be within an hour. Again, that 60-minute goal. And I think that's the key part in pneumonia. It's really get the antibiotic plus or minus BiPAP. What do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree. Pneumonia gets a little tricky. Um, there's really, if you just take pneumonia on its own, um, there really isn't great evidence for um, non-invasive ventilation to help you out. Um, you know, the treatment of pneumonia is going to be antibiotics if you have sepsis and respiratory failure. Because of it, it'll be the more aggressive treatment that way. Um, where BiPAP can be helpful in pneumonia, I think where we're seeing it more, is um, the patient that you know is definitely going to do much worse on in, on a traditional ventilator, right? So I think in the neutropenic patients, um, the cancer patients, the ones with no white count, if you can bridge them, um, just to the reason why it's helping isn't the BiPAP itself; it's the avoidance of conventional ventilation um, that's been shown to help. I think we're starting to see people use it more, also in the extremes of elderly. The patient, you, you feel bad putting them on a ventilator, um, you know, especially as you get towards that demented nursing home patient where the advanced directives may not be as clear. Um, and again, there's a lot of ethical issues there, and you have to be careful. That's something where you want to talk to the family about it. Um, you know, should you use it in the DNR patient? Well, it's not intubating them, but it is a fairly aggressive therapy, you know, and, and meeting people's expectations important because you could say, sure, this may buy you a little time, but certainly not going to, if it's pneumonia in the patient, um, save their life. So I, th I think when you're talking about those cases, you know, again, the neutropenic, sure, you should give it a try, but again, you have to be at the bedside. Traditional pneumonia, um, really no evidence to support either mortality or decreased um, intubations. And then in that group of folks that are older, you're on the fence, you're not being quite as aggressive, I think you really have to sit down with the family and try to understand what they want. Um, because otherwise, you, you don't want to put them in a bridge so someone else can make a decision. That's not right. right? You want to be aggressive in sort of your decision-making in terms of where you're going, what are the goals of care, what am I getting out of it? Because I think what's clear is, although you, you can use it in some of these patients, it's not the method that's going to help them cure and get better. Agreed. Just for the interest of time, as we're coming to closure, um, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is no, I have, for me, no benefit in non-invasive positive ventilation, due mainly because this is not an easy reversible disease process, um, and it's it going to be taking a certain amount of time. So you're just delaying the inevitable, you're making yourself feel better again, and then the patient will crash two, three hours somewhere else and require emergent intubation, which has been shown in the literature that those patients who crash have increased mortality. Any yeah, of that? I agree. And again, if you want to take it to the evidence too, you really have to take in um, 
be clear about the fact that the definition of ARDS has changed um, since 2012, right? ARDS, when the study, most of the studies were actually looking at it in non-invasive was done in the early 2000s. And ARDS then was, those are sick patients, you know, ARDS back then was defined as a PDEF ratio, PAO2 to FIO2 ratio of less than 200. That patient's really sick. That patient's not going to get a great deal of oxygenation from an EPAP of 5, 10, you know, not, maybe not even 15, right? What do we know in ARDS? Bad ARDS patients, when you have them on a ventilator, you have peeps of 15. You have these really high pressures. You're doing much more complicated ventilator management. That's not something you can do in a non-invasive machine. I think now with the new Berlin definition, you know, they sort of lumped acute lung injury into ARDS. So now it mild ARDS is what we used to call ALI or acute lung injury and someone with a PDEF ratio of less than 300 not quite as bad and perhaps in that patient you know that because if you look back at some of the studies some of the ALI patients may have had a little benefit but again that's not your go-to ARDS is usually secondary to something else going on and even even you know and it's that underlying problem that you got to figure out. So it's trying to be cute and tricky with the ventilator or with the ventilation side of something much more complex may not be the right answer, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think you sort of lump that into what we were talking about with pneumonia. You know, who might do well? Maybe, maybe the patient who has underlying COPD that got exacerbated by a little pneumonia or something else is causing it, and that's part of it. Well, we know the COPD part may do well. Um, and that's where you really have to think. That's where you have to be a clinician. You can't just look at different studies and data, but you look at that specific patient and say, do I think I can get them better in a half hour to an hour? Can, do I have the time to spend with them and do all this? What's their hospital course going to be? What do they want? What are their goals of care? And then sort of say, can BiPAP help me with that? And I think in most of those cases, the answer is actually no. Um, agreed. Um Agree, and I, I'll tell you that the people that we think that ARDS um, meets the Berlin definition that Schlesinger was referring to for some of the residents who wants to refer back, you can pull the ARDS Berlin definition to look to to get the charts and those numbers. But ARDS sometimes can be confused clinically with acute pulmonary edema, so those or the patient, if they benefit by BAP, they're actually in acute pulmonary edema, not in the RTS. But just to kind of finish and to wrap it up, um, one of my other kind of, not pet peeve, uh, being a critical care and practicing in the ICU, uh, we're more used to ABGs. And ABGs have kind of disappeared really from the emergency medicine because of, well, there's really no need to have an ABG. Um, because we know that a patient who's hypercapnic has the CO2 rise, the mental status is going to change. They're going to become more lethargic, so we can follow it clinically. Now, that's great and all, but so now I'm putting my hat as the person upstairs, and I'm receiving the patient from downstairs to come upstairs. And for me, I get an ABG the next day or six hours later, and now I'm seeing a PCO2 of for 62. Patient is wide awake, workout breathing's down, I'm winning it off. And I'm asking myself, hmm, is 62 baseline? Or, and he, he came in at 98? 
but they don't have that evidence. So now I don't say every so for my reason, I'm not saying every patient on non-invasive ventilation needs an ABG. But the severe patient that's going to be admitted on non-invasive, not the one that you weaned off, I think an ABG is warranted. What would you say? I agree. I mean, I'm a huge fan of ABGs. I wrote a book chapter on ABGs. On ABGs. I love it. Um, I think you, you should. I think in that sick patient, you need it because... One of the things with BiPAP is we were talking about it again and again, right? We're at the bedside. We're reassessing. We actually need the patient to get better. If you put someone on BiPAP and they look exactly the same two hours later, three hours later, now, you know, are you really getting a benefit out of it? I'm not sure. The risk is still there of aspiration and stuff. And, And putting the other hat on, and both of us know this, working in the ICU, you know, sometimes you work hard on a patient, they're starting to get bad, you put them on BiPAP, you're, you're, we're at the bedside, you know, you leave it to maybe one of your colleagues for the overnight who may not be quite as thorough, and you come back the next morning and the patient's exactly how you left them. They're worse, you know? Either someone should have been more aggressive with the treatment, or you should have said, you know what, this isn't working. And it's a roundabout way of answering your question but the abg maybe you may not have a lot of mental stats to work with the person might be you know used to higher pco2s and that abg especially not on the oxygenation side i mean the real question is the co2 the carbon dioxide side maybe one of the few ways you can see if you're getting improvement at all right because oxygenation we can do through pulse oximetry and then for those residents out there who are going to try to be cute and put an end title on and use the end title um i did it too i thought it was good but i think the data's been coming up recently showing that when you use that nasal end title co2 detector in a bipap mask the accuracy falls apart and part of it is because the mask is holding some of the CO2 in there, it's not dissipating quickly, and it's just not accurate. So I wish that worked. I wanted that to work. Right now, it does not work. So just be careful with it for anyone who's thinking of that. Just to quote our mentor, Dr. Scalia, sometimes trying to be cute is not the best thing for the patient. And I think that falls into that category of trying to be cute, but no benefit. I do not use BiPAP. Excuse me, do not use uh, entitled capnography. There is, however, a new mask that's coming out uh, with a distal port, but again, that's not been shown to to decrease, uh, not been shown to be effective. Anyway, um, any departing thoughts, any departing comments? Um, I would just say, you know, this is, I, th- I think when just thinking about all the stuff we just said, Again, the key part to reiterate is this. Going with non-invasive is not always the easy way out. It requires a lot of your time. You need to be with the patient. You need to be there. You can get great rewards from it because you can get patients better. They'll thank you. You'll save them from an intubation, which will save them from all the morbidity associated with it. But it really requires that time. Um, And it requires the thought because there's a lot of patients we see, especially as people get older and more complex, that aren't necessarily just CHF or COPD or asthma or pneumonia, right? They're combinations of all of these. And, you know, there's not going to be a study that says, oh, it works in the person with three of four or two of four. Um, So you need to, you know, use your experience, use the data that we know, but really use your bedside instincts to use this modality to help people. That's a great conclusion. Um, Make your, look at your patient, 
be at the bedside, be aggressive, use it early in the right patient population. So we're out of time. Thank you very much for listening. Again, any question, we're available via email, uh, through the board. And I want to say thank you very much, Dr. Sessinger, for spending the time. And again, thank you and happy birthday. Thanks so much, David. It's been an, an honor to be here and to talk to you guys. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Find all episodes of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine and other podcast series on the AAM website underneath the Publications tab. Join us again next episode as Dr. Farsi will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians.